Our passage today is James chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. And as I said, it speaks to God's purpose in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the hardship. And one of my classes that I took in seminary that was very intriguing to me was the class called Apologetics. And it wasn't a class on how to be sorry or, or apologize, but it was a class on how to defend the faith, to defend the faith against philosophical attacks or reasonable attacks and to prove and to show that the Christian faith is, in fact, reasonable. It is, in fact, a coherent worldview, and it is. In fact, I think it's the only coherent worldview. I think all other worldviews uh, fall short. Of course, this is not a message on apologetics. Uh, but one of the questions that really uh, intrigued me and I really thought through and just wrestled with, uh, even writing on a little bit, it was this, is if God is all good and God is all powerful, then why is there pain and suffering in the world? And it was a good question. It was a, it's a good question to ask. It stumped. It's one that many uh, atheists really found themselves on. It's one that many Christians have really struggled and wrestled with uh, throughout their journey of faith. But it's a good question, and it's partial, because it doesn't take into account all of who God is. God is all good. He is all powerful. He is sovereign. He's in control. But it doesn't take into account the fact that God is also all wise. He is all wise and glorious. He is for his glory, and he is also for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I think when we understand that, and we understand that God is good, God is in control, and God knows what he's doing, we can find some settledness in the midst of the suffering. Well, it'd be good to remind ourselves of the context of James. We're nearing the end of the book. Uh, we'll be in here for just a, a few more weeks. He gets a little choppy kind of at the end. So we're, in, we're going to be in the book of James for another month or so. But he is writing to Jewish Christians who have been spread in what's called the diaspora. It's the scattering of the Jews throughout the world. Uh, it began with the Assyrian exile, and then in the Babylonian exile, and then the final one uh, is the, uh, the Christian one, which he's, he's really focusing in on that one, is the one that came about after the persecution of Stephen. And Paul stoned Stephen, and there was a scattering of the Christians throughout the world. And we see that he's writing to these people who have been scattered because of various degrees of persecution and op opposition, but he's also writing to these, these Christians. So it's a, they're new covenant believers who are now being not only oppressed by the Gentiles like they were before, but they're also being rejected and murdered by their own countrymen, the Jews. They were, being, um, they were not finding safe harbor with those who they used to call brother, and they were well acquainted with suffering. And that's who he's writing to. He's writing to people who knew suffering, and they knew it at an experiential level. He's just been talking about even how some of them were poor and being oppressed by those who had uh, more wealth. But before we get to the passage, and we will, I want us to just to highlight some four facts that we just want to kind of frame up our idea of suffering. And this could be a topical message on its own. It's not going to be. I'm just going to state these, and there's some scripture references that you can go and look and, and check me on these things. But the first is this is that suffering is a result of the curse and sin in general, the curse of sin in general, not necessarily a result of a specific sin someone committed. Though it could be, it's not necessarily the case. Uh, John 9 is a great example of this. There's this man born blind, and Jesus and his disciples are like, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus is like, none of them did. It was, he was born blind that my glory might be displayed uh, to you today, it, it fulfilled a purpose. It wasn't a result of specific sin. Now, it was part of the fall, but it wasn't like this man sinned, so he had this 
punishment that happened to him as a result. And then the second fact is this, is that the greatest victory this world has ever known came at a point of the, most, the greatest suffering this world has ever known. Because Christ overcame the world, he overcame sin, he overcame Satan, he overcame death through his own sacrificial death in our place. He overcame, he was victorious, not by the absence of the trial, but through the trial that he endured on the cross, where the wrath of God was poured out on him in our place. He bore the sins of all humanity, taking the curse upon himself, because curse is the one who hangs on the tree. He bore the curse of death. He went into the grave, but the Lord did not allow his Holy One to see corruption. And on the third day, he vindicated him as the righteous Son of God and resurrected him from the dead. He's now ascended to be with the Father, and he's going to come back to judge the living and the dead raising up some to eternal life, some to eternal condemnation. And the good news is, is he, he did that because he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that victory through suffering is now offered to everyone who turns from their sins, they believe the gospel message, they commit themselves to Jesus Christ, and they follow after him. They deny themselves... They take up the cross, the pathway of suffering that Christ himself had walked, and they follow after Jesus. They confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, and they will, and they will be saved. That is the good news of the Christian faith. I want to pause right here and just say that if you have not come to a point in your life where you have turned from your sins and believed in Jesus, I invite you to do so right now. We'll talk after the service, but I want to invite you to make that decision right now because the rest of the message that I'm about to talk about is going to testify of the hope that we have in Christ in the midst of the trial. And I want you to know this, that if you are not in Christ, the hope that I'm going to speak of, it is offered to you freely, but it is not currently yours by possession. The hope in the trial is for those who have believed the gospel. For those who are still dead in their sins, there is no hope in the trial except that hopefully it will grab their attention and lead them to Christ. Our hope comes through our, as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, our hope in the trial is not to be removed from the trial in this life, but to inherit and enter into the kingdom of Christ. Acts 14, Paul is encouraging the believers and he says it's through many tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom of God. John, at the beginning of Revelation, he talks about how he's our partner in the tribulation and the kingdom as we're awaiting the fullness of that uh, to come about. We are knowing that this life is marked by suffering and it's through these tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of Christ. So our hope is not to be avoid any trial on this earth, but to enter into Christ's kingdom. And then lastly, this is a very important point as well, is that in Christ, no matter what we feel like in the moment, we are never alone in the trial. God is with us. He, Jesus did not leave us as orphans, but he sent his spirit to take up residence within us, to fill us with his, the fullness of the presence of God, and he is with us always. I love the book of Matthew. It begins with Emmanuel that God is with us. He comes to earth, and it ends with the promise that God will be with us. It is bookended by the promise that God is with us. So no matter what you're going through, no matter how alone you feel in the trial, know that God is with you if you're in Christ. Now, I also want to take a moment before we get to James 5 to address just an, an elephant that is in the room. 
I do not personally have experience with deep suffering. Both my parents are still alive. Goodness, I got all four sets of grandparents still alive. It wasn't just a couple years ago that I lost all my great-grandparents. I have two kids, one on the way. I I haven't experienced the pain of loss or of a cancer diagnosis or the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child or, or the pain of a miscarriage or the pain of 10 miscarriages. I haven't experienced that personally. And I want to say something that to you that I, I, want, I want you to understand. Is I don't want to make you feel that I get what you're going through on a personal level because I don't. You know that. And I don't want to speak to you as if I understand exactly what it is you're going through so I can speak to you from my experience. I want to testify of something better. The Word of God. I want to testify you of someone who gets what you're going through better than any human on this earth is because Jesus knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you're going through better than anyone else does. He gets it, and He is with you. And His Word provides for you a better wisdom, a better solution than even the best knowledge that can be gathered through experience. One of the great passages in 2 Peter is when Peter's reflecting upon the transfiguration and on the glory that he saw in Jesus Christ. And he says, but I have a better testimony than this. And he's highlighting the Scriptures. So I want to testify to you of what the Word of God says, knowing that I don't know what you're going through, but Jesus does. We don't follow human teachers. We don't follow other people. We follow Jesus, and we listen to his words. I want to testify of his word. I want to be his vessel. I am just a jar of clay, and I'm sent here to testify to you of the good news of Jesus Christ and the wisdom that is found in his word and nothing else. And my hope for you today is that you walk away with these three truths, and I've already mentioned them. God is good. God is in control. He's even in the pain, even in the suffering. It's a part of his plan. He's in control. It's not like he's lost control for a moment. He's in control always and forever. And he knows what he's doing. Let's read James chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. So as, as he's explaining a little bit more about how we should be patient, enduring as we wait for the Lord's return, establishing our hearts, not grumbling against one another, knowing that the judge is standing at the door ready to return. This is what James says. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed to remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give wisdom, pray that you would give insight, Help us to understand your word. Teach us by your spirit. May this be a time where you focus our hearts and our minds and our wills upon the scriptures and upon your son, Jesus Christ, that we may live empowered by your spirit in the midst of all circumstances, magnifying the Lord in the trial, maintaining a faithful witness and enduring in faith as we await and look forward to the day your son, Jesus Christ, returns and all, every eye will see him 
Every tongue will confess for him to be Lord, and we will be resurrected unto eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would sustain us in the trial. Lord, I pray that this time would not be about anyone in this room, but this would be about you. I pray that you would help me as I proclaim your word, that you would anoint them by your power, and that you would use this time to transform my heart and the hearts of people in this room, that we may look more and more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So, one of the things I want to highlight in that first point, we've, we're not going to spend too much time talking about the prophets because we've already talked a little bit about Jeremiah. But we want to highlight as an example of suffering and patient, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. One of the, the signifying points of the prophets is they had, they had hope in the new covenant. They, you began to hear in the prophets this new covenant. They began to look towards the new covenant, which was partially fulfilled in Christ's first coming and then fully fulfilled what will happen in his second coming. So we need to have that mindset in, our, in ourselves, looking both to what Christ has done and what he will do. And I may shamelessly plug that we're talking about the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights uh, at 6 p.m. Uh, you may want to come by and check on, on what that's going to be like. But the prophets, they suffered because they spoke in the name of the Lord. So they experienced persecution and opposition specifically as a result of not sinful behavior, but righteous behavior. They were opposed, and they spoke in the name of the Lord. But not only did they just suffer um, you know, opposition from the, their enemies or from the, the leaders of Israel or Judah, they also suffered alongside the rest of the people in famines and wars and hardships and sickness and death, some of them even uh, dying uh, gruesome deaths uh, at the hands of the people that they were trying to serve. And what I also want us to come to is that suffering is a reality that is for disciples of Jesus Christ in this life. Jesus was called the man of sorrows. He experienced suffering. Most likely, he experienced the grief of losing a father. Uh, he experienced being rejected by his own people, people he loved. He was abandoned, and he died. Gruesome death, being mocked, beaten, spit upon. He knew suffering. And what else I want us to understand is that if he knew it, we will as well. There's a teaching out there, though, that, however, that's, that, that is very insidious and it teaches you that you can avoid suffering in this life if you have faith. And it's prosperity gospel theology. You have the fullness of that expression with, you know, you're, you're sowing seeds in heaven and, you know, pulling from heaven. That's the fullness of the prosperity gospel. But you also have lesser expressions of it as well that talks about that if you just claim certain promises and what's called prayers of faith, or you just use Jesus' name in a certain way, that you will be healed, or you're, you, know, you, you won't lose your job, or your cat won't die, or, you, or you, won't, you, you won't get cancer, or you'll get healing, or you'll claim healing in the atonement of Jesus Christ that is talking of an eternal healing from the curse of sin and death, and you'll claim it in a temporary way, saying that the atonement of Jesus Christ, that is the death in his place, provides a healing for you in this life. And I want to be here to tell you very clearly that that is a false teaching. And hear me say this, it leads to despair not joy. It leads to people rejecting Jesus Christ, not accepting him. Because what happens is, and it always, always, always happens, is that ev eventually the wisdom that we think that we have does not line up with the wisdom of God, and the will that we desire to take place does not line up with the will of God, and he does not answer the prayer in the way that we think that he should answer the prayer. So that means the healing does not come. The, the, the child is lost. The job is lost. The money runs out. Whatever it makes, whatever fill in the blank, 
doesn't happen. And at that point, it's a very crucial point of despair and hopelessness, and it's, it's heartbreaking to see, and you can see it coming a mile away, because what happens is, is that person or those around them, they realize that the God that they have built up in their head is nothing more than a fantasy, a worthless idol that can do nothing, and they see God to be a fraud. And God's not a fraud, but the God that they have built up in their heads is because it's not true to the Scripture. It's not the God of the Bible. And what happens is, is they or those close to them reject the living God they thought they were worshiping, but indeed they were not. Suffering is a reality in this life, but I want us to highlight, better. there's a better news than if you come to Jesus in faith and you believe in Jesus and you endure in faith, then God will protect you from trials in this life. That's Okay, that would be kind of cool if it had it. But Jesus promises something way better. Is that if we endure in faith, then we will be victorious over sin and death, sharing in the victory that Christ so freely gives us through our own suffering. So when the enemy attacks us and he assails us, and even if we die... We overcome because our faith is in Jesus. And the moment we die, what appears to be our greatest moment of defeat, our bodies go into the ground, but you know what? Our spirits are with the Lord, and we have the hope that our body too will be raised anew, and spirit and flesh will be joined together in glorifying union, and we will reign forever and ever and ever in the presence of Jesus Christ after seeing sin, death, Hades, the, the beast, and his false prophet all cast into the eternal lake of fire and we will live in that eternal, blissful, joyful state. And that is way better than the trash that the prosperity gospel peddles out. It's way better. It's not even close. But that's, I don't want to rail against the prosperity gospel. I want to tell you of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want us to look at the example of Job. Because in chapter 5, verse 10, it says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Blessed is a word means joyful. It means happy. It means it's, it's the fullness of the delight of the Lord. And it's, we remain steadfast in faith. And he highlights the example of Job. He says, You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And it will take some time to just kind of walk through his story a little bit. So if you're familiar with Job, he, he's an ancient figure. He lived probably before the time of, uh, of Abraham. We don't really know quite when the book was written. It's either the oldest book that was written or written sometime in the exile. It doesn't really make a difference. Job lived a long time ago. And um, he was a blameless man, it says. Now, that doesn't mean he was perfect. It means, just like it does today, he had faith in the Lord. He feared the Lord, it says, and he turned away from evil. No, and with that faith, he began to live, and he had a, a pretty good life. He had 10 kids. Seven of them were sons. Three were daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many, many servants. He had much, a lot of property, pro, property. He was just. He was respected. He had power. He had political power. I mean, he had it going on. And then there was this day in chapter 1 where God, these angels are coming before God's throne. And Satan comes into the room, and God asks him, he says, hey, where have you been? And Satan goes, you know, I've just been going to and fro, basically wreaking havoc on the earth. And God goes, and this, is a, 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 this question will stop you in your tracks. God goes, 
Have you considered my servant Job? Have you thought about him? And Satan looks at God and he says, why would Job have any reason not to bless you? You've given him everything. He has kids, he has money, he has power, he has economic stability that would last generations. And God says, all right, take it all away, but just don't touch him. And in a single day, we see disaster after disaster after disaster, and there's widespread, total economic collapse for Job. Loses it all. And then there's a tornado or wind strikes the house that his sons and daughters are feasting in, and all ten of his children die. And he falls to the ground, and this is what he says. He says, Naked I have come into this world, naked I shall leave. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He endured in faith in the midst of that trial. But then chapter 2 comes, and Satan again appears before the Lord. God says, where have you been? He goes, I've been going to and fro, you know, wreaking havoc on the earth, basically is what he's saying. And God again says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan goes, skin for skin. This guy doesn't care about them. He didn't care about the money. He can still get it all back. He still has his health. And God says, all right, take his health, but leave his life. And Satan then strikes Job with these painful sores that begin to ooze, and it says that he sits in the ashes in agony, and he's scraping them with broken pieces of pottery. And his wife looks at him, and he says, you fool, what are you doing? Why are you holding on to your faith or your integrity? Why don't you just go ahead and curse God and die? And Job looks at her and says, you're foolish. You're speaking foolishly. He says, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil or that which is bad? It says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And what he's meaning there is not that he never said anything sinful, and that he's saying is that Job did not depart from God. He did not curse God. He did not reject God. He maintained and he endured in faith. And I want to highlight just quickly that this is an important point in the book of Job, and that is this, is that in the midst of the trial, anger at God is never the solution. Anger at God is never the solution. Now, I'm not talking about, hey, you need to suppress your emotions, or I'm not saying that like God couldn't handle your anger. There's this kind of movement in, in some younger circles of Christianity that like really lifts up like your authentic self or whatever, and it's like, hey, just be angry at God. You know, He can handle it. You know, just be angry at God. Be mad at God. And they try to, and they encourage this this foolish anger towards God, which is is so ridiculous to me because, I mean, of course God can handle your anger. He's God. There's people who are angry at Him all over the world, but the point is is that you cannot handle being angry at God. And what they're giving you, or that person is thinking when you're, when you're lashing out against God in anger, you're acting in foolishness because you're questioning the goodness, the wisdom, and the sovereignty of the only one who is those things, and you grow embittered in your soul against the God who can provide the comfort and the healing that you need. So basically, being angry at God is you, you, you forfeit this idea of what Jeremiah was saying. You know, Jeremiah was feeling great pain, saying he's like teeth being dragged across the gravel, that he's forgotten what happiness is. If he, were, if he were to be angry and lash out in anger directed towards God, he would have never brought to mind what gave him hope in the trial, which was the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So when we give into this wrathful, just 
bitterness towards God in the midst of the trial, what happens is, is we forfeit the peace and comfort that God is wanting to provide for us. Denny Burke says about, about this when he's talking about how the Psalms give great guidance how to approach the, the Lord in the midst of soul vexing trials. And this is what he says. He says, In the Psalms there is desperation, grief, anxiety, frustration, and lament. But in none of it is there ever justified anger against God. He says, There's a world of difference between how long, O Lord, and how dare you, O Lord. There's a miles difference between those two statements. And that he's referring back to Psalm 13. And if you're going through a hardship, Psalm 13 is a great psalm to reflect on and to uh, meditate on. He says, The psalms are doing their level best to show us that no matter how low we feel, no matter how low we go, God is good and holy and trustworthy in all that He is and all that He does. The faithful response to affliction is to believe in God's goodness and faithfulness, no matter how bad things get. He says this is the fight for faith that all of us have to wage when the chips are down. And we can learn from Job that no matter how bad things got, he did not curse God, he did not lash out in anger at God, but he trusted him. He trusted his goodness, and he trusted his grace. Now, Job was not perfect. He was better than his three friends. Over the course of the next 30 chapters or so, there's these conversations that take place, and basically his friends have this very temporary perspective that view God in this kind of mechanical way. And Job is speaking to them. And one of the interesting things about Job that makes it a little bit difficult is that sometimes his friends say things that are true, and sometimes Job says things that are false. And sometimes his friends say things that were true if they were viewed eternally, but not if they were viewed temporarily. And there's that, you're going to have to weave through some of that. And then you get through Job and his three friends, and you get to this guy named Elihu, and he speaks for about four or five chapters. There's different views on Elihu. Uh, I'm of the opinion that he is a, an interpretive key for the book, and he speaks truth. Uh, you know, the other view, just so you know, is like he's not, he's like the worst. Or so, you know, there's no middle ground with Elihu. Um, but Elihu speaks truth. He, he, re, he echoes some of the same things that God has. He confronts Job's friends, and he confronts Job as well. And then God shows up on the scene. And this is what God says to Job. It's, it's really, I mean, just fascinating. If you've never read Job verses 30, chapters 38 through 42, I encourage you to read it. After all of this, after all these conversations, this is what God reaches out and speaks to Job. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And he speaks to Job. He says, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. He says, Hey, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I mean, tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? I mean, surely you know. And God goes on for like three chapters. I mean, just drilling. And it's, and it's, it's one of those things that you just step back and you go, wow. And God, is, is in this moment, is he is disciplining the Lord. And we see what James is talking about. We begin to get to it. And we see in James chapter 5, verse 11, it says, We know the steadfastness of Job, but we also see the purpose of the Lord. That word purpose is the word telos, and it means the end design that God had. 
Now, there's different ways of translating that. Some people have translated the end result that God brought about. But reality is, is the purpose of the Lord was not in just the restoration that took place afterwards. The purpose of the Lord, which is compassionate and merciful as defined by the text that we're reading, was also at the very beginning when he allowed the suffering to take place. God's purpose wasn't just seen in giving the good, but it was allowing the bad to take place in the context of the will that he had determined that it would. God was purposeful throughout the suffering and the restoration, and it was to reveal his compassion and mercy to Job and to those around him. And so how does God reveal his compassion and mercy uh, to them? Is that We see that God reveals his compassion and mercy through his discipline and his comfort. Because at the end of this, what Job says, after being drilled and grilled by God, Job looks at him and he says, he says, I've heard of you. He says, I've heard of you with the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes see you and I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. In the midst of that, God was showing Job who was blameless and that he feared the Lord, he had faith, and he was enduring in that faith and he was turning away from evil. He was walking in repentance and Satan meant to attack him and destroy his faith and what Satan meant to destroy, God meant to strengthen. Job, at the end of it, had a greater knowledge of God, a greater holiness, and a greater faith. And that's how the sovereignty of God works in the trial, is that at the end of it, God uses it to develop in us a greater faith and a greater knowledge of him. I've heard this from many people, many, many, many people in this congregation who have underwent great trials. They say things like, I don't really want to go back to the trial, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But I wouldn't trade the knowledge and the intimacy that I have with God as a result for anything. Because even in the discipline of the Lord, we experience his comfort. 2 Corinthians 1 says that God is the God of all comfort, and He comforts us in any and all affliction. He is our comforter. And even in Job, we see Him comforting Job. Because you know what God did not have to do in the book of Job? He didn't have to answer him. He didn't have to give him insight. But He did. Now, it was terrifying, awe-inspiring, but it was comforting that God spoke to Job. I mean, we should just be in awe of the fact that we have the Word of God and God speaks to us through the Scriptures. The fact that God speaks is incredible. I that would be a different sermon. <laughs> but God reveals His compassion and mercy to us through His discipline and His comfort. And He also reveals it to others through our faithful witness. If you look at the way that God speaks to His friends, I mean, His friends were, were boneheads but he tells Job to offer sacrifice for them. And he accepts their plea, even though they don't deserve it. He accepts the prayer that Job offers on behalf of them. And in the trial, it's the same true today. I love what we were talking about in Acts 27, the shipwreck. God used that trial in Paul's life to encourage countless other individuals. And not only that, if you got to the, the island of Malta, to, to encourage the people on Malta. I mean, God uses trials all the time to lead other people to faith. God will use your te temporary discomfort to provide internal salvation for those around you. 
if we maintain a faithful witness and tell people about Jesus and the reason for the hope that we have. And even greater than that, the most comfort that we will know through the trial is a comfort that we have not even experienced yet. And it's that we, God will reveal His compassion and His mercy towards us that we learn from Job in our eternal vindication, which is it's, we are being you know, vindicated. I just use that as a definition. Uh, we're being uh, you know, kind of backed up. You know, we're being resurrected. We're resurrected, and people are going to know, hey, God is with these people. Though the world rejected you, though they went through trials, though they maintained faith, they're not fools. They were right. They knew the Lord. They're, they're sons of God. And then our glorification. We see that pictured partially in the restoration that Job has at the end. It says he was, the Lord restored his, restored his fortunes, and he had more, you know, twice as much as he had before. And that's a good point for us, is that right now we're in this season of trial, but there's a day coming where we will be vindicated and glorified in the resurrection. And the joy and the hope, that, I mean, the joy that we will know then is way more than anything this world could have ever offered, even a life free from trials. That's our hope. And Job had that. And if you look at Job 19, it's in the middle of the book, and it's really one of the most wild verses in the entire Bible. If you think about the context of when it was written, how old this book is, but this is what he says. He says, For I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. So he's already talking about a bodily return of the Lord at the end of the times. Before Abraham. How crazy is that? He says, After my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That's bodily resurrection of those who have faith, that they will see God face to face. He's testifying before Abraham of what we know to be true based on Revelation 22, 1-5, that we will reign with Christ in the New Jerusalem in glorified bodies, and we will see Him face to face, and His name will be on our foreheads, and His glory will be reflected in our face. That is wild, and that's what sets Job apart, is he has this eternal perspective where he doesn't look to what is seen, but he he looks, he has this hope, even with a partial revelation that he had at the time of resurrection, of eternity. And he says, I will see for myself, my eyes shall behold, not another. My heart faints within me. Man, does my heart not long for that day, too. So I don't even know if I hit that point, but I want us to highlight what I'm, what I'm hope, hoping to understand in, in Job is that in the midst of suffering, we may feel like it's just the enemy working and like God has somehow lost control. No. God is still in control. He is sovereign over our suffering. He is sovereign over our pain. And, and that's, the, that's good news. Some people wrestle with that, but that's good news. Because if God is not in control, then someone else is. And if God is in control, I know that he is good, and I know that he knows what he's doing, so I can rest in that. Though it is painful, though it is hard, though it hurts, God is good, and he knows what he's doing, so I'm trusting him in the midst of this. And we can know, like Joseph found out, that what his brothers meant for evil and slave, selling to slavery, that God meant it for good. And how Paul had a messenger of Satan that was afflicting his flesh, that he was pleading 
to be removed from him? God said, no, this was sent to you so that you may know humility and know that my grace is sufficient for you. You think Satan wanted Paul to learn humility? You think Satan wanted Paul to know that God's grace was sufficient? No, God did. God had purpose in the thorn of Paul's flesh, whatever it was. And we know even more than that, that God had purpose in Jesus' suffering. It was the will of God that Jesus would suffer and die in our place. Satan entered Judas. Satan deceived Annas and Caiaphas. Satan tempted Pilate to be a coward. But God was sovereign over it all. And it was the will of God that it would come about in the way that it did. That those who turn and believe in him would have eternal life. Because God is wiser than the enemy. The enemy is a fool. And he is going to do the same things over and over and over again and reveal himself to be a fool over and over and over again as his disciples of Jesus Christ endure in faith and they overcome him in the midst of the trial. Not by being removed from the trial, but through it. Because in the end, we will be raised up. We will be vindicated and glorified. And this is where the blessing comes. The blessed of those who endure. Because for those who are steadfast in the faith, that is those who are genuine disciples of Jesus Christ, suffering produces an eternal joy that far outweighs the comforts of this life. All of the comforts of this life. Any one of them, all of them put together, the eternal joy that the sufferings that we experience in Christ outweighs them all. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. It says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, this is Paul speaking. Paul who was stoned. Paul who was shipwrecked. Paul who was beaten with the, 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 the cat's tail, with, you know, beaten with 39 lashes. Paul who was rejected by his people. Paul who in every city he went to, imprisonment waited, awaited him. This is what he says. For this light, momentary affliction. This light, light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal because we hope in the eternal reality that Christ is coming again he will judge the living and the dead he will establish his kingdom on earth and he will recreate the earth and and after he destroys sin, death, and Satan once and for all in the lake of fire and he will establish the heavens and the earth again and we will reign with him forever and ever and ever. And I want you to understand this, that God is good in the midst of your trial. God is in control in the midst of your trial and he knows what he's doing. And though I don't know experientially what you're going through, I can't empathize with you in that way, I want you to know this, what you're going through, the pain that you're feeling, it is real, it is hard, it hurts, but it is not meaningless. It is not meaningless. God is doing something. He is working in you, and He's preparing for you in the midst of the trial an eternal weight of glory. It's not meaningless. Endure in faith. Endure. Don't give up. If you're dealing with despair on the inside that no one knows about, God knows He's with you. Endure in faith. If you've lost a child or you've had miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage, endure in faith. God is good. God is in control. He knows what He's doing. If you've lost a spouse, if you've lost a parent, 
God is good. God is in control. He knows what he is doing. Endure in faith. The trials that you're going through are real, and they will prepare for you an eternal weight of glory that you will not know in this life necessarily, but you will when Christ comes again, and your eye will see him, and you will reign with him in eternity. We pray right now, and we ask how long, and we may question where he is, but in that day, face to face will be our prayer. And we will see him, and we will love him, and we will live forever and ever. So how do we apply this message? Will you trust God? You be a vessel of mercy and compassion to those who are going in the trial. You're pointing people to the hope of the gospel. You're caring for them. You're loving for them. You're being with them. And then you're hoping, and you're hoping, and you're hoping, and you're hoping in the resurrection because that is the good news of the gospel because Jesus didn't just die on the cross, but he was buried and he rose from the grave again. And just like our bodies will die, we will go to dust. There will be a day when the trumpet sounds and our bodies will be resurrected and we will live forever with him. That is our hope. Hope in that. Look to that and don't look to the things that are seen. God is good. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding. Give us eyes to see. Give us the faith needed to look to the things that are unseen. Help us to look to these examples that have gone before us, the prophets, Job, how they've endured in faith, how they have lifted their eyes to the hope of the new covenant. Help us to do the same. Lord, I pray specifically for those who are undergoing a trial right now in this room. I pray that you would comfort them. I pray that you would use this church family to come alongside them, that they may know not only the comfort that comes from the spirit who lives within us, but the comfort that comes from the body of Christ. And I pray for those who are preparing to go through a trial. They don't even know it yet. I might not even know it yet. Trials are realities. We know that. It's through many tribulations that we will enter into your kingdom. I pray that you prepare our hearts for that day of trial. That we may endure in faith. And I pray for those who are on looking members of our church who are going through trials, family members who are lost, friends who are lost, co-workers who are lost, I pray that you would use these trials to bring people into eternal life. God, you are good. You're in control. We trust that you know what's best. In Jesus' name.